This episode of Safe Space Radio is brought to you by the Lerner Foundation, Physicians for Social Responsibility, and listeners like you. This is WMPG. My name is Anne Hallward, and I'm a psychiatrist in Portland, Maine. And this is Safe Space Radio, a show about the subjects we would struggle with less if we could talk about them more. Today, we're coming back to a series that we began in January about the Maine Wabanaki State Child Welfare Truth and Reconciliation Commission. In January and February, we spoke with one of the commissioners, Sandy Whitehawk, and we spoke with three of the women who helped convene the TRC and have been some of the moving forces behind it, Esther Atian, Maria Gerard, and Stephanie Bailey. And at that time, we were really focusing on the history of the Wabanaki people in Maine, and particularly the history of child removal by the state and how for over 100 years, uh, children were removed from Native families as a form a very intentional cultural genocide to strip them of their culture and how children were removed to boarding schools and adopted out to white families and how since 1978 with the Indian Child Welfare Act, which we refer to as ICWA, there's been a real concerted effort to keep Native children within their tribes. And what we have not done so far is, is have a guest who can speak to the child welfare end of this. So today with me in the studio, I am so delighted to have Sean Yardley. Sean has been working with the Department of Health and Human Services for years as a supervisor, as a caseworker, and ultimately as regional director. He's also taught about the Indian Child Welfare Act at the University of Maine for many years. He's been involved in needing to remove children from families himself. He's grown up close to two Passamaquoddy reservations and ultimately has welcomed three girls with Native American heritage into his own family. Welcome to Safe Space Radio, Sean. Thanks for having me. I want to start out by getting to know you a little bit. Uh, this work of uh, removing children from families where there seems to be a real danger to the child is, is harrowing, fraught, and painful work. What is it that inspired you to want to do this with your life? Well, I actually, as a, as a senior uh, social work major, um, I was placed at the department by um, a faculty advisor who thought I was cut out for child welfare work. Um, I kind of went kicking and screaming. Um, I do nothing about child welfare work, actually. And as a new caseworker, I was scared to death. Um, scared to death of having all that responsibility on my shoulders. And when you say the responsibility, do you mean the responsibility of determining whether the state needed to get involved at all or the, the, the responsibility of deciding what to do with the child? All of that. I mean, I think one of the things that I, that I found were that other systems, education, law enforcement, medical, um, were in some ways as threatened and um, confused by what the department did or didn't do as families themselves. And so... I don't understand what you mean. Well, um, I think sometimes schools um, chose not to report because they were afraid um, of unleashing the power of the department on a family or being wrong in their concerns. If you were, if you're a doctor and you have a patient that has a condition that requires a specialist, you use your, your connections, your authority, um, your ability to um, connect people with services to a specialist, and that's seen as a very positive thing. But in 
the world of child welfare, so often I heard teachers or principals or social workers say, I'm really sorry, I have to report you to the department. And that sets up automatically, it sort of builds on the fears that families already have. Um, and, and so let's talk about those fears because, I mean, I think on the street, the reputation of, you know, a report to DHS on a family is, A, that the family's at risk of losing their child, which would be catastrophic to that family. Or, I mean, I think it feels humiliating to people. So how could they see it more positively? What do you mean? Well, I think one of the things that that I tried to do was to work with the family to see what what resources could be brought to bear that might relieve some of the stress. The vast majority of the people that I worked with were as um, committed to being the best parent they could be as I am. It's um, so good to hear, you know, that's not our sense of, of people who get right, reported on. Right, and and I think it's set up because they immediately feel threatened, and rightly so, and then take an adversarial posture with the department. Um, and so it's really, really hard. And I, I think it would be naive to think everyone would just open their arms and say, oh, isn't that nice? Child welfare is here. But I think at some point, um, the reality is the reality. And the sooner a family could get to that place and trust to work in partnership, I mean, I think good things a lot of times would happen. So when you say the reality is the reality, do you mean, all right, there really is a problem here. We mm-hmm. have to face it and we have to address it. And is it, are there cases where there has been abuse, say a child really is brought into the ER with a broken arm, say, so there's documentable evidence, um, and maybe even the family confesses to it, where the child is not removed and there are actually supports get brought in and parenting classes and I don't know what else, and the child can stay there and the parents get to get the support they need to to not do that? Yes, that happens. I think one of the realities, again, is it's all done in a political environment. And and especially when I first started, over the first, I don't know, 10 or 15 years of my career, um, it's the, the, the orientation, the culture of the department was risk aversion. But the risk aversion was not have a child die in your caseload or have something like that happen. And, but they didn't look at the other risk, and that was the risk of, you know, unnecessary intrusion, children being taken prematurely. You know, I always said that when a child was removed, we, the system always contributed to the abuse of the child. How? Well, when you remove a child from everything they know, that's abusive. Abusive not in its intent, but it's an impact on the child. It may be the lesser of two evils, but not to be aware of that. And the other piece that and was... Did you feel like the department really wasn't aware of that? I mean, absolutely. Because from a psychiatrist standpoint, you know, there's physical trauma and then there's emotional attachment trauma. Right. And to remove someone from all their relationships is, is devastating. Absolutely. And I think the culture was to think more of being called on the carpet for leaving a child in a home where something then subsequently happened was much more common because the checks and balances, if you took, you went to court and you didn't have the evidence, the judge ultimately makes the decision. So you sort of could, you know, sort of default to that process, but it wasn't 
it wasn't in the best interest of the system or the families and the children involved. I see. So, so what I'm hearing you say is that essentially the way the culture of the department worked, there was so much fear of something bad happening on my watch, preventing a, a measurable physical abuse episode, that in a sense the bigger picture got lost about what was really at stake here, which is the child's relationship with their parents. And the best environment possible for the child going forward. Yeah. So let's so that seems like something that would be kind of understandably a problematic in any department of social you know, health and human services around the country. But then let's introduce the issue of native communities here. Um, because that adds a whole other layer, it seems to me. Um, what I know is that the Indian Child Welfare Act came in at a time when children in Maine were being removed from Native families at a rate of 19 times more than white kids. And that now it's about still about five times higher. And what is your understanding of why there is such a disproportionate rate of child removal from Native families than from white families in Maine? I think the vast majority of that you know, sort of reality is that Native families are disproportionately poorer, disproportionately more isolated, disproportionately um, have significant health issues, including addiction issues. So I, I, I really believe that they, how Native children and families are treated is more a reflection of the broader issues of how all families that are poor, that are uneducated, um, that um, don't have the resources to get supports or to defend themselves um, right. exist. Okay. Yeah, so then, and do you think that, so that all makes sense. Do you think that there is an additional element of racism or a wish to kind of strip this child of, of their native ties? Do you think that that's in there? I, I think multi-generational, it, it is, it exists, I truly believe, in the eyes of the native community based on generations of experience. Um, I did not see that um, in the way that I think it would be easy to understand and explain um, through the, the work of the Truth and Reconciliation Committee. I, I, I really don't believe that. Now, I'm sure that there are isolated individuals that are racist. I think I, I, that that's unfortunately, I think, a reality. But I, but I, I like to believe that it's more a lack of cultural understanding. So, so the, um, the way the tribe plays a significant familiar role with the child um, is something that, I mean, I've been around and tried to understand that. And again, looking from the outside, I, I, I think I can understand a little bit, but not the full impact. You know, the extended, it's not just extended family. It's extended community that has nothing to do with, you know, um, blood relationship, father, grandfather, uncle, aunt. They are, it's one family. Um, I see. So you're saying in a way it's it may be literally sort of cultural blindness. Yes. Like we don't, as a white person, we don't get 
that there's something far deeper here. It's not just, you know, we talked a moment earlier about the attachment relationships that a child has and that the loss of removing them from everything they know. We know that psychologically. But you're speaking now culturally. There's a way that we don't get what it means to be part of a tribal community, that that there's this other devastating rupture and loss and, that hasn't been factored in. Right. And, and not only has it not been factored in, it, it, in, in terms of, you know, sort of an assessment that you do on a family-by-family basis, there aren't even tools and sort of the instruments of practice that would be built in to ensure that those things are considered. There aren't laws that are written with those cultural sensitivities built in. And so what would be an example of something that could do that? Like if you were going to write that law, Sean, how how could there be an assessment that included that built into the child welfare process? Well, I mean, I, I think... When, when we when we would do assessments, there were certain folks that you had to interview. Um, you know, whether it was the babysitter, the school teacher, the next door neighbor, um, and so there's sort of checklist things of this is what makes a good assessment. Um, I think you know, and, I, and in my experiences, you know, with Indian Island, with Peter Dana Point, and Pleasant Point, with those communities. Um, you have to ask the question differently um, for yourself as you're reflecting on, okay, what, you know, because it really should be, and this is, I think this has evolved, a, a, a strength-based assessment as opposed to sort of a, a deficit. And what would that look like? Um, where are the strengths for this family and for this child so that there can be assurance that child is going to be safe in their environment. And so if you don't know who, what the strengths are in the first place, you might not ask and find them when they're right there. Well, I'm so struck, you know, even in my medical training, because I'm a mandated reporter also, medical training is all focused on, you know, the detection of illness and risk and vulnerability. But I think there's a movement within psychiatry, but I don't think it's fully taken hold yet. Even in every note that you write, an assessment of the patient's strengths, some people do it, but it's sort of voluntarily. It's still not standard to say, what are the protective factors here? It's changing, but it's very gradual. I've got seven children, so I've spent a fair amount of time in emergency rooms with my children. And this is just a real specific example. There have been times when I've gone to the emergency room and they've asked me what happened. And I've had to say, I don't know. They hear that from me as someone that's, I think, highly regarded in the community. And um, a white guy. A white guy, um, a professional. And I have been willing to say, I don't know. Or I did it, I was wrestling with my son, and my other son pushed me over, and I fell on top of him. And boy, don't I feel bad. And that was the end of the question. Right. You were not cast into suspicion. Right. And because I knew I wouldn't be or that I had faith, I could be honest and say, I don't know. Right. So we're talking in, this, in a way here about self-fulfilling prophecy. Mm-hmm. If you come in as, say, a Native woman, and I'm already terrified of this system that has robbed you know, my people of their children for, for more than a century, 
I'm going to be defensive. I'm not going to be as honest, which is going to raise the suspicion in the clinician. Absolutely. Saying she's lying. She's covering something up. And then off we go right. down the garden path. Well, she's going to say what she thinks the right answer is. And then when she doesn't and the story doesn't fit, right. then there's, it immediately... There's distrust. Right. And suspicion about what else isn't being told. And it's real easy for me to be in the majority culture to be able to say, oh, trust us. And I, and I did this with the Native community, and it was a little naive, but it was like, can't you see my heart? Trust my heart. I want to do it right, and when I do it wrong, teach me. And take the time to to do that, but there has to be a trust. And when I was working, doing community coalition building, um, I was invited to um, a traditional smudging ceremony and I was I was an invited guest and I looked around the circle and I was the only non-native there and I felt like I'd arrived and like within two weeks we had a meeting where the five um, tribal communities in Maine came together and I was pitching a federal grant opportunity to bring in some resources to do some really important work and I can be a little um, enthusiastic, and um, and I know stepping outside myself, I probably sounded like a snake oil salesman. And one of the tribal members from a community that I hadn't worked with before who didn't know me, who I had no relationship with, said, why should we trust you? You've been making these promises to us for 300 years. And there was a part of me that sort of said, what? Don't you know who I am? You can trust me. And I'm guessing those same kind of things have been said for generations. And it really it really allowed me a glimpse into sort of the the depth of the challenge of working closely with communities. And in some ways she was right too in that I needed them because having for this particular grant having the native community signed on gave us a competitive advantage. And I knew that. And so, yeah, I was using them. Um, and she knew it. And she knew it. And I couldn't deny that. And I had rationalized it. Yeah, but this is going to be good for everybody. Um, but it was true. And, and even though I would have played it out hopefully different than those that have made those promises before, I couldn't deny that. And I didn't deny it. I mean, I'm, you know, you're really bringing up this, the issue of trust. And in a way, a Truth and Reconciliation Commission is a step towards building trust. I mean, that's part of what it exists for. And, you know, I heard you say, like, early on, you said you felt like you were kind of naive. You know, you were saying, don't you see my heart? Don't you see I'm a good person? And I suppose you could argue that, that centuries of, of uh, racism, you know, undid white people's ability to see native people's goodness and heart and competence and strength. And you've been working in native communities for years and you've obviously have built some trust. You were, you were invited to that smudge ceremony. What have you learned about what it takes to build trust given the foundation of so much, you know, genocide, racism, et cetera, betrayal? Perseverance and commitment. And, and not ascribing um, personal you know, sort of 
attacks as being personal and all. I represent something. But the other thing for me, um, with child welfare in general, and, and, uh, but specifically um, in relation to Native communities, you know, I have three daughters um, that they, they do, they're doing really well and they're great kids, and, um, but they have, they have wounds and scars from a system that didn't do right by them all along. So you you have adopted three girls that have some Native American heritage, I understand. And you're deeply aware of all the issues of... I know you, you with hu- real humility, acknowledge like you don't fully understand the cultural piece of it. What was it that made you decide, as a white guy, to adopt these three girls? And how, what were the things you weighed in your mind when you decided that? Well, you know, it's really interesting because it was it was a very spiritual thing for me my my youngest at the time was 16 we had talked earlier in our life about adopting and I had then left the department and but I still was sort of getting the you know the the mailers and the newsletters from different organizations and there was a picture of these three girls and and they just spoke to me um and at the time we didn't know that they had any native heritage at all um, and they aren't recognized as tribal members. But I will be honest, um, there was a little bit of fear that the department might have somewhere in the past not done something right legally and that a native community might come back and say, we weren't served, we weren't given um, due process. Um, we, in other words, they might try to reclaim these right, girls. Yeah. Right. And and um, and I asked a lot of questions about that. And then once we made the decision and we were moving in the process, um, I was working um, with the Penobscots. And so I reached out to people and said, okay, so how do I do this? I, I don't want to force it on them. I want to celebrate who they are. And um, part of the advice was you need to expose them. And when we have Wabanaki days come and, and I, I challenged a little bit. I said, well, you know, sometimes I haven't always felt welcome. And he goes, no, you're right. That's true. And so, um, you know, how do you do that without putting a name tag on the girl saying, here's why I, have a right to be here kind of thing. So, you know, I, I think it's not blame. I want to say there's enough blame to go around, but there's enough work that we all have to do to do the reconciliation. And, and you can't undo and you can't deny. I think you have to acknowledge and then say, so what do we do now? What do we do going forward? And so, you know, over the years, my girls and I, we have lots of conversations to talk about that. I mean, part of what strikes me is that in the interviews that we did with Sandy Whitehawk, you know, she talked about being out-adopted to a white family, and she was given messages by her adoptive family that sort of don't be a good-for-nothing Indian kind of thing. And what I'm hearing is the spirit in which you're doing this could not be more radically different. I mean, if anything, you're trying to figure out how to help these kids celebrate and value some part of their heritage that they didn't even know. Um what was it like for you to actually meet their biological mother and to negotiate that transfer of care with her? 
I, I actually had the opportunity to meet twice with her once early on when there was a legal proceeding um, that um, she was required to be at. And um, it was incredibly emotional. Um, the thought that has stayed with me in some ways haunted me is um, at a point in the proceeding, she was excused from the courtroom and um, and I needed to stay so I didn't get to do a proper goodbye. And, and as I was driving home, um, it was two or three hour drive home for me, um, I thought about what I was coming home to and what my girl's mom was going home to. And um, that was really, really powerful. And a few years later, my wife and I had the opportunity through her attorney to sit and talk with her. And we spent two or three hours and shared the hopes and dreams that the three of us had for the three girls. Um, And she is an an incredibly loving woman um, who was truly, I think, happy to hear how well her daughters were doing. And, um, and I think grateful that my wife and I referred to them as her daughters as well as our daughters. And um, it, just, it was just affirmation um, that the love and the dreams and the wishes that people have for their children um, are not diminished by perhaps their resources and capabilities to help them achieve those dreams and wishes. I hear you, and I feel both moved by her ongoing love for her children, her generosity with it, but also this feeling of like, oh, do you think if she'd had more support and more resources, she could have kept them and been a good mother to them? I wonder about that. And, and you know, it, I think I, if, if, if I let it, it could haunt me um, because I'm clearly sort of the the advantaged um, part of the culture um, and, and uh, you know I I struggle with that you know yeah. frankly um, and uh, and it makes it makes me even more driven or committed to be the best parent that I can be because I've been entrusted in a different way than I was entrusted with my first four. Um, and so yeah. that's, you know, we talk about that a lot as a family. Sean Yardley, thank you so much for being my guest on Safe Space Radio. It's so, you speak with such a depth of experience and thought and care about this. It's really a pleasure to speak with you. Thanks for having me and thanks for doing what you're doing. I think it's incredibly important and it has lessons much broader than this specific issue that I hope people will think about. When, what do you mean when you think of that? Well, all the decisions we make about how we, the role of government, how we use limited resources, um, how we look to judge and punish rather than understand and support, I think is so critical today. And so for people who really want to learn more about this, can you make a recommendation of something that's helped you learn more about Native culture that you'd like to recommend? I think that... For the people of Maine, I think, that want to learn more, once the library gets uh, up and running, for people to hear the testimony of those that were close to this, 
I think would be a great thing to do. I, I'm going to. I'm looking forward to the opportunity to do that. And I understand that's going to be housed at Bowdoin. At Bowdoin, and I think it's going to be an incredible, not just a resource for Maine, but for the world. Um, and and um, and then with the with the documentary that's being produced too, I think that will. And that's a, a little ways out, but I think that would be a great opportunity for people who think they understand to learn more to challenge whether they do or not and if they do understand speak up and and make a difference and if they don't listen and learn and and change thank you so much John. if you did not get a chance to listen to this whole show and you would like to or you'd like to send the link to a friend please go to our website safespaceradio.com while you're there, you can also look up all the prior interviews we did on the TRC in January and February of 2015. You can also subscribe to our email list where you can get notice of all our future shows as soon as they come out. If you'd like to contact me directly with a story idea or a request, please email me at dranne at safespaceradio.com. That's D-R-A-N-N-E at Com. You can also like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Safe Space Radio. You can also download us and subscribe to our podcast through iTunes. I do want to let you know that Safe Space Radio is taking the summer off. We'll be back in September. I don't yet know the show that will be filling in for us on Mondays at 1, but I hope you give them a listen. And we are behind in posting on Facebook, so if you like us on Facebook, you can continue to get new shows throughout the summer. My thanks today to Gabe Graben for producing the show and to Jim Russell for being our editorial assistant. We will see you in September. Coming up next is Speak Freely.